Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Scroll. So we have someone else in the uh, podcast studio today. Who's that? Yeah, I'm really excited to introduce people to uh, Matt Parker, who who is uh, the author of the forthcoming book, A Radical Enterprise. And um, uh, I, this is a, a podcast I've been waiting for for it feels like over a year, actually. As soon as I heard about the book and, and some of the ideas behind it, uh, I was immediately intrigued and uh, uh, very excited um, to it coming out. And so, uh, Matt, welcome to the to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. Um, so, Matt, I'd like to start, uh, I was kind of asking you a bit about what was your inspiration for uh, writing the book? And, uh, you know, for me personally, often I'm inspired by things, the wrongs I want to set right in the world. And you had a bit more of a, a mellow reaction to it. What, what led to this uh, this book on your part? Yeah, I think this book may be generations in the making. My father was a programmer and his father was a programmer. So he was among the first and I became a programmer. And my oldest daughter has done a little bit of programming too. So anyways, there's like this whole sort of line of programming going on. And, you know, we inherit all these things from our parents, including suffering as well. So <laughs> I think there's, I don't think, I'm sure your readers will resonate with the fact that like programming is not maybe the most and technology is not an industry without its faults. Uh, and that certainly was my experience when I got into programming. I knew my dad had had a bit of a rough time of it. I knew growing up that he had things like panic attacks um, at work and stuff like that. But I, you know, I was young and I didn't connect a lot of dots. But my first decade in uh, software in the software industry opened my eyes. Right, like it was sort of a a terrible experience. Right, in which um, one of a lot of stress and really a lot of unneeded stress. And I became very quickly convinced of three things. This way of working is bad for people, uh, people like you and me. And this way of working is bad for business. Like it doesn't actually help the business for people to be working like this. And lastly, I was convinced that this way of working is completely a choice. I don't mean that people are like actively out there choosing to make other people miserable and to have a terrible time of making software together, but nonetheless, there's nothing required about that experience. We can, we can, we can adult any way we want to, and we can have a lot of fun if we want to. We can build great things together without all that stress. Um, and my, so my second decade uh, of experience was night and day from that. Um, and I, I was very lucky to be approached by this company called Pivotal Labs, which at the time was just a, a boutique consulting agency doing extreme programming uh, and teaching clients how to do it. Um, and I joined that company, learned the ins and outs of pair programming and test-driven development, really hyper-iterative software development, um, and learned how to not only uh, build things right, but how to build the right things. Like it was just such a wonderful, powerful experience. And I had so much fun doing it with the people that I did it with because we were doing great things together, learning from each other every day, having a blast while doing it, geeking out all day uh, and building great stuff with and for our clients at the same time. So so Matt, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, maybe I'll channel some of our listeners who, who yeah. might be saying to themselves, boy, Matt, that sounds really great. Um, some years ago, uh, when the world was better, and um, in a boutique consulting firm that's um, building nifty products and um, ha has a lot of cash coming in, 
you know, my, my world's not like that. I'm, I'm stuck in the, the middle of a, a, a giant uh, corporation and, uh, you know, I have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> but uh, why is that relevant to me? Why, why are you saying that it could be better for me? Yeah. Um, well, for two reasons. One, I deeply empathize with your experience because I was there. I did that kind of job and lived in that kind of world and I hated it. And then I became aware that another way was possible. The great thing about working at Pivotal Labs is we weren't doing this on our own. We were working with some of the largest enterprises on the planet, with government agencies, with the military, all over the place with, with organizations that you would never expect to embrace things like extreme programming. Um, and yet they did. And we had a lot of success doing this with clients and helping them figure out how to do it on their own, how to continue to scale it past the engagements with us. Um, that gave me a lot of hope. It gave me enough hope that I became very interested in learning more about sort of the future of work. And that led me to write this book, A Radical Enterprise, Pioneering the Future of High Performance, because I wanted to understand what all is out there, right? Beyond my own personal experience, how are other companies doing this? And if so, how are they doing it? And are they scaling it? And, uh, and then if we peel back sort of what's happening in those organizations and look under the hood, can we understand why does it work? How does it work? And why does it work? And so that's ultimately what my book is about. And it, I boiled sort of down the successes of 13 different organizations from very large 80,000 person organization to very small organizations and found sort of four primary imperatives behind their experiences that made their way of working successful. And that, that, that sounds like a, a natural uh, tee up there. So there's uh, the four the four imperatives. Uh, uh, we don't have time probably to go well, of course, in depth as they will in, in your book. But maybe we can give them kind of a thumbnail uh, version of, of of what those four imperatives are. Yeah. So um, there were four primary things going on in all these companies that seemed to underlie their success with ultimately what I ended up calling radical collaboration. Broadly, in all the companies you'll see in this book, um, which really represent about 8% of organizations around the world at this point, are working in a way that we can describe as radically collaborative. And that's basically an experience in which people are, one, working together on a basis of partnership and equality, so they're not structured as dominator hierarchies. Um, there's no like clear management chains and authority command. And yet there's still a ton of structure and very powerful and nimble ways of working inside these organizations. And so they're working in a way that's based on both uh, freedom of collaboration and freedom of commitment um, and freedom of honoring those commitments. Um, so the four imperatives that seem to underlie the success of so many of these companies started with team autonomy. Just right off the gate, you can see that teams within these organizations were autonomous in really a number of different ways. They had autonomy of backlog, right? So they were owning what they were doing day to day. Um, they had autonomy of schedule. They were deciding when to work and when not to work and whether to co-locate or whether to be distributed. Um, they had um, a number of approaches to team autonomy that sort of boiled down to the how, the when, the where, um, even things like autonomy of allocation, what teams to join. So that was one thing that stood out um, Another uh, imperative that I found within these organizations was a process of managerial devolution. Devolution is a technical term 
for the decentralization of power out of the hands of a static sort of dominator hierarchy and into the hands of a heterarchy, which is another fancy word for uh, self-organizing, self-linking networks of teams. Um, and so managerial devolution both encompasses things like governance, like how do we, what is the business of our business? How do we go about doing our business, right? What are the rules, processes that we're all agreeing upon and playing by? That process has, uh, wasn't decided by people from on high, you know, by fiat, but was actually developed in, in very often very decentralized ways, but very powerful ways that you can read about in the book. The other aspect of managerial devolution that I go into is the way they devolve compensation in a number of these organizations, not all of them, but many of them, um, into or uh, things called like the fractal compensation model or the dimming pay system. I'm sure you're listeners have heard of W. Edwards Dimming. Many of these organizations subscribe to a pay system called the Dimming Pay System um, uh, and others as well, including like self-managed pay. So the third um, uh, imperative that I discovered uh, is deficiency need gratification. I think if you step back and you look at, you know, the human beings inside these organizations, I think what you can find almost all across the board is that they derive a much greater sense of security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, trust, and belongingness from their work relationships than people do in much more traditional hierarchical organizations. And that's not an accident because most of these companies have prioritized human needs, basic human needs. Those are called deficiency needs in the field of positive psychology. Uh, and so deficiency gratification is one of the imperatives. And the last imperative I call candid vulnerability. And that's me trying to create a more uh, relatable term for something that you can read about in sociology called model two reasoning or productive reasoning or model two productive reasoning. Ultimately, it's about the people in these organizations not only feel safe to say what they think and what they think should be done or what they think about some proposal or anything, but they also feel safe to make themselves vulnerable in that moment by saying why they think it. What are the hidden chain of inferences, assumptions, beliefs, biases, whatever, behind this idea that they have about what they believe? Um, yeah, so that that actually is a sort of a, a way to supercharge innovation, collective innovation within an organization, because it makes it safe for people to say the things that they want to say, but it also keeps them uh, from turning that into a fight about who's right and who's wrong, but rather an exploration that in many cases seems to separate the idea from the ego. So at a high level, those are the four imperatives, teen autonomy, managerial devolution, uh, deficiency gratification, and candid vulnerability. I'd like to ask about a, a phrase that you used there in describing it. And I, it's one that I, I know I have an advanced copy of the book. And one that stood out to me was your use of the term dominator hierarchy, which um, doesn't seem like a value neutral term. Like it has an emotional, I have an emotional response when I hear that term. Can, can you describe what a dominator hierarchy is and how you're relating that to the normal workplace? Yeah. So a dominator hierarchy is a, a, a social structure in which power, resources, privileges are distributed unequally and concentrated at the top. So in a hierarchy in which people are stacked and ranked, um, uh, the people, the farther up you go, the more power, resources, authority, etc., that you have. And so the higher up you go, the more statically privileged your judgments are over the people beneath you. Um, this is what, uh, in the field of positive psychology, they refer to as a growth-inhibiting structure. 
because by design, this type of structure deprives you of basic human needs of security, autonomy, fairness, esteem, trust, belongingness. This is a structure that actively undermines all of those basic human needs, especially the farther you go down. But really, it, it, it hurts everyone. I mean, even the person at the very top can feel so lonely, so overburdened. Um, uh, in my own experience, right, I've, I've played a number of roles within dominator hierarchies, and I have found none of them to be awesome or pleasant or gratifying experiences, but really draining experiences. Uh, and so that's something I explore in the book as well and, and really um, juxtapose dominator hierarchies, which you can find in most traditional organizations with uh, heterarchies, so self-managing, self-linking networks of teams that you can find in many of these radically collaborative organizations. So one thing there is something you have a certain, uh, it sounds like empathy for people who are in the dominator hierarchies, even at the top positions. Uh, um, it sounds like, cause you, you can say, well, they're not necessarily enjoying that. And maybe they didn't even necessarily choose it. I think that's one thing that stands out to me is if you've, if this is all you've ever seen, well, you know, you didn't really have a choice. Is that, is that, is that fair? And, and, and part of the role of your, uh, that you hope for your book to be is to help bring uh, the fact that this is a choice to light. I remember that was one in our introduction. That was one of the things you said, this is a, a choice that we're making, but it often doesn't feel that way. So am I, yeah. am I on the right path here? Yeah, yeah, totally. I I think it's important to recognize that it is a choice, um, and yet it is also something that we do tacitly, right? I mean, you, you could say like buying a home or renting an apartment or something is also a choice, right? But no one stops to ask themselves, should I not do that? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. should I not live in a, right? So this is the same level, I think, of um, sort of tacit, unconscious choice that we make and we perpetuate these sort of dominator hierarchies uh, sort of unthinkingly by and large, right? It's just something we accept and we often don't realize we're even doing. It's an unquestioned assumption that things have to be that way. What makes that, do you think, more natural to people than the hierarchy? If I get that phrase almost right. Uh, what 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 makes the dominator hierarchy more uh uh, like it feels it feel like a natural choice or an even a safe choice even if people have heard of the option and I, at this point i imagine most most people in management if they read harvard business review they've they've heard of holacracy they've 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 heard about some things but something about that seems very unsafe what what is it about the dominator hierarchy you think that makes it feel um not just natural but but um, perhaps safer than the alternatives yeah well, one of the human needs I mentioned earlier is security. And security is essentially uh, uh, a resistance to change, right? Mm -hmm. Security is waking up every day and knowing that you're not, the rug isn't being pulled out from under you, that what you expect to be there is there, right? And we are born into dominator hierarchies. It's often the way our families are structured. It's the way our governments are structured. It's the way our companies are structured. Schools are structured as them, right? It's all we've ever really known, for, by and large, for most of us, uh, myself included. Um, uh, and so anything that's not that is going to just instinctively threaten uh, this sort of inborn human need of security. So there's that aspect of it, I think. The other thing about it, too, is um, it's really, I think, showing showcasing the power of memes, memes not in the in a colloquial sense of like some picture you see on the internet with some funny caption, although those are memes too, but memes in the sense that R Richard Dawkins originally proposed, right, as a unit of cultural propagation, 
right? The most powerful memes in our societies are the memes we don't even know we have, that we don't even think about, that we don't stop to question. Those have the most power over us because they're hidden in some sense. They're hidden in plain sight. They're in our face every day. Um, And yet we often don't stop to see them. So I was very uh, um, pleased in reviewing the book, and, I, and maybe this is a good time to to have the disclaimer, which is you actually interviewed me as part of the research for the book, and the uh, company that um, actually both Squirrel and I worked for uh, at one time, Tim Group, which you've mentioned in the past, is one of your uh, case studies in the book. Uh, I'll say this, so one of the things that we're, you note in there is at Tim Group is we had a study group. I was very pleased with this because it's like, oh, great. This is a place you've done the work to bring together a lot of different pieces of what we've learned about the ways that people could do things. And and then by learning about these, make a choice. Uh, that's to me when I when I looked at it, I'm like, oh, that this would be a great uh, um, asset for me, would have been a great asset for me at Tim coming in and, and, and will be for me in the future going forward with my clients and to say, here's kind of an existence proof that other people have done this and, and not just survived, but thrived. So th- that, that to me was, was, was very exciting because it, it, it addresses exactly what you're describing, the kind of the, um, resistance to change. And so how to help people be more resistant to change. Well, first you have to understand there even is a choice <laughs> and then, need to have some sense of safety uh, of what of what might appeal to you. That approach, uh, uh, it, it seems to me that this would be a fantastic resource for people who want to be able to introduce in their existing environment, hey, look, here's some examples of other options. Uh, yeah. is that, is that, does that match up with what you're hoping? What, what, would, what would Matt have done with this in his first decade if he'd come across this? Oh, yeah, there's no telling. Um, it would have, it would have blown me away. I, I mean, largely in my first decade, I was suffering but unaware of even the cause of it in many ways. So, um, I I love the Tim Group story. I love the um, uh, the process that uh, you and others went through at Tim Group of uh, really exploring in a study group um, different patterns, new ways of uh, working together and organizing with together um, in ways that. Uh, not only improve both business outcomes, but also human outcomes, right? That was, uh, and to be able to see how that played out at Tim Group, little by little, baby step by baby step. Um, I think there there are 13 different, in fact, even more than 13, but uh, let's say 13 primary case studies in the book, um, including, you know, at a company like Hire, which is an 80,000 person company. I tell that story too, but personally, I don't think it's as powerful as the story of Tim Group, even though Tim Group is not as large as higher and maybe um, isn't so prominent on the world stage. It's, I think, much more relatable for the primary audience for this book, which are technology professionals, right? People who maybe have a sense that something is wrong, but aren't sure if it could ever change and need to see um, uh, and hear those experiences and stories and lessons learned along the way. Um, and so to see the Tim Group story unfold throughout the book, all the way up through you know the last chapter, I think is... I'm very thankful that it's in there and that I got to interview you, you and others at uh, Tim Group to learn about that story. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I was pleased that other people were interested and that you you found it so compelling. Um, this this actually might be a good um, break point for us uh, uh, for uh, for today's episode. 
Um, we kind of have given an overview here of uh, a radical enterprise, um, talked about the four imperatives of uh, radical collaboration, uh, team autonomy, managerial devolution, de deficiency gratification, uh, candid vulnerability. Um, uh, I think what might be good is to come back uh, next week and uh, I'm get into the next part of saying kind of like, if you uh, have this in your hand, like how could you start applying this? What what would be a way to start introducing it, uh, and um, and why might you uh, want to do that? Uh, so I, I would look, love love uh, Matt to go into that in our uh, next part, and uh, hopefully everyone will will uh, stick around and join us next week at Troubleshooting Agile. Matt, do you mind coming back next week? Would that be okay? <laughs> Let's give that. him some autonomy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. I will gladly make that choice. Excellent. Fantastic. So uh, um, thanks, Matt, for, for being with us. Uh, you can find uh, everything about Matt, uh, the links to the book, to Matt's um, materials and so on. Matt, do you want to give any particular places people should find you? Uh, MattKParker.com has links to my email address, my Twitter, as well as to the book and everything about the book, as well as to a Slack workspace as well for anyone and everyone who's excited by the ideas in this book and wants to meet other people. Um, it's, it, I've already started to share that Slack workspace out there with others, and we have a growing community of people interested in radical collaboration and self-management. Fantastic. Okay, so you'll find all those links in our show notes as well. I always worry some of our listeners are driving and they'll uh, try to write this down. Don't don't do that. Look, look <laughs> up the show notes after after you're finished. You know, don't 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 get into an accident. And uh, while while you're uh, also looking at the show notes, you can check us out as well and and ask us questions. Um, ask questions about this episode and and your path to to uh, a radical enterprise or or why you think that's a dumb idea. All of that would be welcome. You'd find us on uh, agileconversations.com. And of course, we'll be back next week uh, with more from Matt. Thanks, Matt and Jeffrey. Thanks, girl. Thank you.